Today, I want to talk about the structure of time as God has ordained it. We've seen that the Bible clearly teaches the premillennial scenario that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom on earth in fulfillment of the vision of all the Old Testament prophets. In Revelation 20:1-6, the New Testament confirms the vision of this coming kingdom and fills in one missing piece of information that it will last for a thousand years. This is of great significance, for the Jewish belief at that time was that God structured time according to the principle of a thousand years being a day to the Lord. That's Psalm 94. It says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. The creation week was seen as a type or blueprint for the whole of history, so that just as there were seven days of creation, so there are seven thousand years of human history. Just as the week consists of six days followed by one day of rest, so there will be six thousand years followed by the final thousand years, when the earth enters into rest under the rule of the Messiah. For six days or six thousand years the earth has been laboring under the curse and the rule of sinful man. But when Messiah comes there will be one day or one thousand years when the earth enters into blessing and rest. Therefore this messianic kingdom age is also called the day of the Lord. Please note that the term the day of the Lord has two end time applications. There's the shorter day of the Lord which is the tribulation, the day of God's intervention in judgment and the longer day of the Lord, which is the messianic kingdom, when the Lord himself rules over the earth. The context will always make it clear which is intended. Now, this Jewish belief in a 7,000 year plan of God based on creation week was well known in the time of Christ. So when John said that the Messiah will return and reign for exactly a thousand years, he was clearly endorsing this belief, saying that Jesus will return and inaugurate the Sabbath day of history. Any other length of time would have contradicted this belief, but by saying it was a thousand years, God was confirming he's operating according to a timetable based on creation week, where one day equals a thousand years. The Apostle Peter also gave his confirmation in 2 Peter 3.8, where he says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Or do not be ignorant of this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, as a th is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Then he said in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise to return, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's talking here about the timing of the Lord's return, saying that although he seems to be waiting a long time, it's not because he's careless or reluctant to fulfill his promise, but that he wants as many as possible to be saved. However, he's not going to wait forever, because he is operating according to a timetable, and the key to this timetable is the fact that one day equals a thousand years. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years to man. Seeing these confirmations by the Apostle John and Peter, it's no wonder that the early Christians also had this belief, along with the Jewish rabbis, which continued as a strong belief throughout church history. So God shows his sovereignty over history by governing it according to his timetable. There were 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham. That's the first two days. Then there were 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ in his first coming. That's the next two days. So the first four days are called the former days. 
The next 2,000 years, or two days, must be from Christ's first coming to his second coming, because according to this pattern, Jesus must return at the end of the sixth day of history. The final day, or the final thousand years, are the Sabbath day of history, the millennial day of the Lord. And so the last three days are called the latter days. You may be thinking that we've already had 2,000 years from Christ and nothing happened when we turn the year 2000. This is a common confusion based on the fact that we count years from Christ's birth. And so when the year 2000 passed, many assumed that this idea must not be valid. However, the key turning point when a new day was born, when the latter days began, when the dispensation changed, was not Christ's birth, but his death and resurrection in AD 33. If we're going to count the 2,000 years, we must take them from this date. So we haven't yet reached the end of the 2,000 years yet, but we are certainly getting close. So history is modelled on the creation week of seven days, which is a type of a week of history of 7,000 years. We stand near the end of six days, or 6,000 years, and therefore the final Sabbath day of rest, the millennium, is about to begin, when Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, will rule. And this is one of the many reasons why I believe we are living in the last of the last days. We will now see three fascinating confirmations of this structure of time, and the fact that one day with the Lord is a thousand years to man. To learn more about the structure of time, I recommend my book called The Keys of Time. Let's look at the first one now. The first four days, or 4,000 years, from Adam's sin to the death of Christ are typified by the setting aside of the Passover lamb four days before being sacrificed. In Exodus 12, the Passover lamb was set aside on the 10th day of Nisan and it was sacrificed on the 14th. Likewise, Jesus was set apart as the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world four days that is 4,000 years before he was sacrificed on the cross for us. Our second example comes from Hosea. There's a wonderful prophecy in Hosea that there are two days or 2,000 years between Christ's ascension to heaven until his second coming. Hosea 5.14 onwards is a prophecy of the Messiah. Let's look at it. It says, For I, that's the Messiah, will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Jesus came to Israel as a lion, as their king, but they rejected him. Therefore, Israel came under judgment, and that's prophesied here. I, even I, will tear them, or cut them off, and I will go away. He went back to heaven. I will take them away, and he took them away from the land, and no one shall rescue. This predicts that after the Messiah comes, Israel will be scattered to the nations. This is exactly what happened, because she rejected Jesus. Then it continues in Hosea 5.15, saying, I will go away and return to my place. And that's Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God. He says, I'll return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt or their sin. What was their sin? It was rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus. He says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. This, the until, you see here, means that he will return after a time. He'll go away, but only for a time, and then he'll return. And the time when he'll return is governed by Israel, when Israel repents, when she acknowledges her sin of rejecting him. 
Then it goes on to describe their repentance. It says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. And this is a prophecy that in, the, in their affliction, in the tribulation, Israel will eventually realize who the Messiah is. And then Hosea 6.1 gives us the words that the leaders of Israel will use to call the nation to repent and to return to the Messiah. They say, come, let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, he's judged us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. They realized that he'd judged them for their unbelief, but that now he was about to raise them up again and restore them. Then, in Hosea 6.2, he gives a clue as to how long it will be between when the Messiah left them and judged Israel and when he will restore them. It says, he will revive us after two days, that is 2,000 years. He will raise us, that's Israel, up on the third day. The third day would be the millennium of 1,000 years, that we will live before him. This prophecy predicts, you see, that the Messiah will come to Israel and then return to heaven. This has been fulfilled. It then predicts he will revive them spiritually at the end of two days, that is 2,000 years. Then it says he will raise them up again as a nation on the third day so that they will live in his sight. We will see in the next verse that he revives, restores and raises up Israel at his second coming. So what is the third day of a thousand years? It's the thousand year reign of Christ when Israel will be fully restored in faith as the chief nation and live in the presence of God. Hosea 6.3 says that the Messiah will personally restore Israel by his return in power and glory. Because it goes on to say, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, his going forth, that's his going forth out of heaven in the second coming, is as certain as the dawn. So he's going to restore them after two days and he's going to do it personally as he goes forth out of heaven and returns to Israel. And he says here, this is certain, it's established as the dawn. This is speaking of his second coming, when he appears as the glorious son of righteousness to start a new day of human history, just as Malachi 4.2 says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. When it says that his going forth from heaven is as, is as established as the sunrise, it means that his glorious appearing is certain and will be at a fixed time. In other words, just as you know when the sun will rise in the morning, that it's sure to come at an appointed time, so likewise the coming of the Messiah to save Israel will be at this appointed time. What is this fixed time for the Lord's, retu the Lord's return, for his glorious appearing, to restore repentant Israel? We saw it already in Hosea 6.2, which hints that it will be after two days or 2,000 years from his ascension to heaven in AD 33. Finally, Hosea 6.3 describes the spiritual blessings in this third day, the millennium. It says, he will come to us as the rain, like the latter and the former rain on the earth. And so this whole prophecy in Hosea speaks of Christ being rejected, then going to heaven for two days, 2,000 years, before returning to revive and restore Israel and pour out his blessings on the earth for the third millennial day. Our third example, another gem, is found in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, which Jesus gave to show what it means to love your neighbor. And to answer the question in verse 25 of Luke 10, what can I do to inherit eternal life? First, Jesus showed the man that he was not good enough to save himself, as he did not love his neighbor as God required. 
At that time, there was a mutual hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So by proving that the Samaritan was his neighbor, Jesus convicted him of his sin of racial prejudice. Thus Jesus helped him take the first step to be saved by getting him to stop trusting in himself for salvation, but instead to look to a savior. Having shot down his false hope of saving himself, Jesus also, in this parable, revealed the true way of salvation. For this parable also contains a wonderful picture of salvation by grace alone. It shows that we can only have eternal life by receiving it as a free gift from Jesus. The parable is an allegory where every detail has a meaning. Jesus is the Good Samaritan, who alone fulfills the picture of the good neighbor, sacrificially loving and showing mercy even to his enemies. There can be only one who can fulfill this parable, and that's Jesus. We are like the man left for dead. We cannot save ourselves. Our only hope is to be saved by our Good Samaritan. Verse 30 says, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man represents all of us in Adam. This was a dangerous journey in a barren desert wilderness called the Red and Bloody Way, a perfect hunting ground for thieves with sudden turns and cliffs, making it easy to hide and suddenly attack a traveler. It was crooked and downhill all the way, descending from 2,300 feet above sea level to Jericho, 1,300 feet below sea level, even the lowest place on earth. What a picture of the fall of man. It was foolish for him to go alone. It was his fault he was robbed. And he represents all of us in Adam. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. This is a perfect picture of the road that man took when he went away from God in sin. You see, we were created to dwell in Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of the great king where God rules, where his presence dwells, and where man had fellowship with God. But man sinned and foolishly walked away from God down the road of certain death. As it says in, in Luke 10.30, it says he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him and they went away leaving him half dead. He was beaten, stripped naked and left to die. What a picture of man in his sin. Jesus chose this story to show how sinful man is totally helpless and unable to save himself. He desperately needs a saviour. Man, you see, had put himself outside God's protection, where Satan and the curse could steal all of God's blessings from him. We were stripped of our robe of righteousness, of our peace, of our wholeness of mind and body. But worst of all, we were left half dead. This means we died spiritually, and we're about to die physically also, and enter into eternal death. You see, God said to Adam in Genesis 2.17, In the day that you eat, of that tree you will surely die but literally that means dying you shall die you see there are two deaths man's spirit died at once and then his body started to die so he was half dead this is a picture of all men without Christ helpless and hopeless unable to save ourselves our only hope was to be saved by the good Samaritan Jesus Christ's first coming to save the lost is described in Luke 10:33. It says, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. This Samaritan is a picture of Jesus. The twist of the story was Samaritans were hated, enemies of the Jews. And likewise, Jesus was despised and rejected of men. And the Bible says that we were enemies of God, but he still loved us. 
It says in verse 33, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Jesus came to us on purpose. He went on a journey from heaven to earth. He was on a mission from the heavenly Jerusalem. And Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to us on purpose, on this mission, to seek and to save that which is lost. We couldn't come to God or save ourselves. We were dying. We were like that man, powerless to move. But when we were unable to come to him, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to us. He humbled himself to become a man, to identify with us. He humbled himself further to enter into our death, to lift us up and to bring us to God. He found us. He reached down to us and saved us from our sin and death. It says in the story, when he saw him, he felt compassion. And Jesus saw us. He saw you lying in sin and sickness, helpless, on the point of death. And he was moved with compassion for you. When we had no power to save ourselves, he became our neighbor. He became a fellow human being like us, and he came to save us. His love for us caused him to come near and humble himself, to identify with us, to get down in the dirt and raise us up. Then we see how this man was saved. In Luke 10.34 it says, He felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up all his wounds, pouring in oil and wine upon them. And on the cross, Jesus fully identified with us and became unclean for us, bearing our sin, our curse, sickness and death on himself in order to save us, to heal us, to restore us, to bandage up our wounds. And by his wounds, we are healed. And he also poured in the oil and the wine, a wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus poured his spirit into us when we asked and received him. The oil and wine speaks of the twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit. First, oil represents the spirit in the new birth. Second, wine represents the baptism and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You see, God wants our cup to run over with the abundant life, the anointing, the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. God said in Ephesians 5.18, Don't get drunk with wine, but be, be being filled with the Spirit. He compares being filled with the Spirit to drinking wine. And as you get filled, you will overflow with rivers of life flowing out of you, just as Jesus promised in John chapter 7, 37 to 39, that rivers of living water will flow out of your heart. This dual ministry of oil and wine is described in Matthew 9, 17. He said, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the new wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, or renewed wineskins, literally, and both are preserved. The wineskins represent our spirits, designed to contain and pour out the wine of God. But because of the fall, they became old and unable to hold the life and spirit of God. They can only be renewed by rubbing them in oil, and that's what they would do with old wineskins. They'd rub them with oil and make them as new. They'd be renewed. And this rubbing in oil is a picture of the new birth. Because when we receive Christ, God, the Holy Spirit came and renewed and made our spirit brand new. And so now our spirits, having been renewed by the oil of God, our spirits can now hold the new wine, the fullness of the Spirit. Our renewed wineskins are able to receive and pour out God's wine. Now the oil is given once, but the wine is given continually. So now we must continue to drink. 
The man received some wine when he was saved, but later in the story he could drink as much wine as he wanted in the inn, with the innkeeper filling his cup as often as he requested. Verse 34 tells us, and he put him on his own beast. This is a picture of Jesus lifting us out of the pit and making us to sit with him in heavenly places in his kingdom. The man had wanted to know how he could have eternal life. Jesus first showed him that he couldn't save himself, as he didn't truly love his neighbor as God required. Instead, he was like the hopeless dying man in the story, who was not saved by his own efforts or merits, but simply by receiving the ministry of the Good Samaritan. In his pride, he could have rejected that help, saying, Leave me alone, let me die. Likewise, all we have to do to be saved is to receive the saving ministry of Jesus. Let him pour in the oil and the wine. So, in this parable, Jesus did answer the question of how to have eternal life by revealing that salvation is by grace, received through faith alone. We must see ourselves as that helpless dying man who cannot save himself. Only Jesus, our good Samaritan, can save us. Risen again, he's ready to pour out his oil and wine into us. All we have to do is receive his saving grace. Now at this point, we might expect Jesus to finish the parable, as he has made his main point. But he continues to add more details. Why? It must be because he's using this allegory to give us some key information about the church age. Verse 34 says, he brought him to an inn and took care of him. There was an inn halfway between Jerusalem and Jericho, so people could break their journey. Having saved us, Jesus took us to the inn which is a picture of the church, a place of protection, peace and safety from robbers, and fellowship with fellow travellers, a place of good food and drink, where you can regain your strength, be restored and help others who have been rescued by the Good Samaritan. Jesus instituted the church as the place he takes care of us. Verse 35 then tells us that on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return I'll repay you. So he paid in full in other words. The Good Samaritan departed then to go back to Jerusalem. Likewise, having come to save us, Jesus returned to the heavenly Jerusalem. But he didn't leave us alone. He entrusted us into the care of the innkeeper, a picture of the Holy Spirit. They obviously knew one another well. You can see that in the story. He said to the innkeeper, I'll be coming back. But in the meantime, take care of him and give him whatever he needs. To cover the cost of this, he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was two days' wages. For the laborers were paid a denarius a day. And we see that in the parable in Matthew 20. The clear hint is that he was going to return after two days. He would go up to Jerusalem and then after two days return to the inn. So this speaks of Jesus, you see, coming the first time to save us, then going back to the heavenly Jerusalem for two days or two thousand years. Then he'll come again, and he'll take us back to the heavenly Jerusalem with him, as he promised in John 14. So Jesus is coming soon. Having died to save us and give us his oil and wine, and ascended to the heavenly Jerusalem, our good Samaritan has promised to return to us after two days, after two thousand years. Thus, these two denarii confirm that this present age is about 2,000 years. 
This then is another confirmation that we're very close to the return of Jesus. He promised to return after two days, and we're living very close to the end of the 2,000 years from when he departed to heaven. So we need to realize we're living in exciting times, with the world heading rapidly towards its climax. Very soon, Jesus, our good Samaritan, is going to return for us from the heavenly Jerusalem. We now go on to our next key to understanding prophecy. Israel and the church are distinct peoples of God whose destiny and prophecies are intertwined. The, this follows from a literal interpretation of scripture. It's simple. Israel means Israel and the church means the church. It's only human reasoning that confuses this issue. God has distinct programs for both peoples. To avoid a wrong understanding of prophecy, we must not blur the distinction between Jews and Gentiles or between Israel and the church. We will see that the New Testament always keeps these as clear distinctions. The Bible is always consistent with its terminology, and we have no right to twist the meaning of terms to make them fit with our man-made theology. These distinctions are very clear in 1 Corinthians 10.32, which says, Give no offense either to the Jews, that's Israel, or, secondly, to the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, or thirdly, to the Church of God. Here Paul distinguishes three groups of people. First he distinguishes between Jews and Gentiles. In the New Testament, as well as in the Old, Jews always refer to the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Gentiles are everyone else. All the Jews together are called Israel. The distinction between Jews and Gentiles is consistently maintained throughout the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, Paul also distinguishes the church from both Israel and the Gentiles. The church is a separate body, the body of Christ consisting of all believers in Christ from among both Jews and Gentiles. So everyone today is either a Jew or Gentile in the natural, and in addition, they're in the church if they are in Christ. A parallel to Jew and Gentile is that everyone is either male or female in the flesh. When you were put in Christ, you didn't stop being male or female, but now you are also in the church. Likewise, in Christ, a Jew is still a Jew and a Gentile is still a Gentile, but if they become believers, they become part of the church as well. To rightly understand prophecy, we must understand these distinctions. In interpreting any prophecy, we need to ask whether it speaks of Israel, the Gentile nations, or the church, if we're to avoid confusion. This means promises to Israel must primarily be fulfilled by Israel, rather than the church. Whatever blessings God has for the church does not nullify what God has already promised to Israel.